everyone. Welcome to another episode of Adventures in DevOps. Uh, we are recording this probably about a month before its release, so we are very much hoping the world is going to be in a better state than it is uh, right now in mid-February uh, with the coronavirus. Uh, I am Nell Shamrell Harrington, uh, coming to you from my home, of course, of Seattle, Washington. And with me, as always, are our panelists. Uh, first up, let's go to Tyler. Tyler, how you doing? I'm doing pretty good. We actually had an earthquake earlier this morning. Oh my goodness. So, you know, everyone's adding to the, the little uh, gasoline to the fire. But, uh, but yeah, it's, we're doing pretty good. And uh, so far, so good. Cool. Uh, Scott, how about you? How are things in Oregon? Good, good. Just uh, hunkering down, restricted on travel, all kinds of fun stuff like that. But uh, yeah focusing on a lot of I am this, these days. So it's a good thing that we're talking about security today. Awesome. And Chuck, how's it going? Going well. Uh, I felt the same earthquake Tyler did. So uh, yeah, I woke up. What are the kids doing? Wait, what's the, what's the world doing? And yeah, so uh, it shook. Um, but yeah, hopefully we get uh, the world patched for this particular virus and, uh, you know, we, we can get back to normal. Great. I certainly hope so, too. And we have a special guest with us this week. We have Jeffrey Groman. Did I say that correctly? You did. You got it perfectly. Oh, fantastic. Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah. So I've been a security practitioner for about 28 years. Um, and, you know, starting out with, you know, before we called it cyber and we, I think we called it network security back in those days or something like that. And then it became information security. So I've had a lot of roles. Um, I've been doing um, security consulting now for the last probably about 15 years or so, um, doing incident response work, uh, working with red teams, um, threat hunting, just sort of playing a lot of different roles um, over the last several years um, and just sort of seeing where, you know, where the trends are and, and what what things are going well and what things, I guess, aren't going so well. If you're a DevOps engineer, learning is constant. There's always something to keep up on, new technology to manage containers, how to keep everything up to date, what's going on in the Linux ecosystems that you're managing, et cetera, et cetera. Educative.io helps with that. They're a platform made from the ground up with software and DevOps engineers in mind. Instead of making you scrub back and forth through videos and spend hours on setup, their courses are text-based and feature live coding environments so you can skim back and forth like a book and practice in browser as you learn. One of the courses I recommend is a practical guide to Kubernetes. Kubernetes can get a little bit complicated and this just breaks it down step-by-step step and walks you through the whole process. It's awesome. They have other courses that cover topics from DevOps to machine learning, system design, and much more. And each course has a free preview so you can poke around free of charge. On top of that, you can visit educative.io slash adventures to get 10% off any course or subscription. Check it out today. Great. We are glad to have you here. And I yeah, thought we'd start off, start off with kind of a general question. So a slide I've used in presentations, uh, including... Uh, defense firms, we'll leave it at that, uh, is when you, you first, when you think you come into a DevOps world, you have the devs saying, it's not my code that's breaking, it's your machines. You have ops saying, it's not my machines, it's your code. And security just says no. So I wonder if you could give us just a little overview. Where, where does security come into a, a DevOps organization? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think what, what really needs to happen is the SEC really needs to sort of um, be, become part of all of it, right? We want developers to be thinking about things in a more secure you know, way. We need operations folks to be thinking about things in a more secure way as well. 
and we need to sort of break down these silos, right? That's that's the uh, that I think is the penultimate. I mean, how many times I, I can tell you in both, um, you know, we see more on the on the red team side, um, where we see things happening sort of live in real time, um, where an application might be really well constructed from or architected from a, you know, authorization um, authentication standpoint. Um, but then we see things like, you know, the underlying OS in production is not all that well patched. Um, or there's services running on it that still have default uh, credentials, but they're not really being used. They were set up at one point, people forgot about them. So you have developers who aren't really thinking about that, not really paying attention to that. Um, and it's sort of divorced from the operations folks who are probably focused on other things. And, you know, and it really gets complicated when you take, um, you know, DevOps and then you say, well, this is also a vendor managed or maintained um, environment. Like, let's say it's something like Teradata or something else that's sort of big and complex and, you know, sort of vendorish. Um, it, then, then you know, you have more of that finger pointing because now the vendors and they're saying, oh, hey, I don't have to deal with it. That's, that's really the vendor's problem. Um, so, uh, unfortunately, that's where we are today. Have, have you guys read Ghost in the Wires? Because this reminds me a little yes. bit of that where, um, I mean, most of his was either, you know, you, you found some technical thing where you could like freak the phone with a whistle or, you know, it was you would go and you would exploit the cracks, right? And that's where we're talking. But you would exploit the cracks where it was, well, Johnny in Department A doesn't know Susie in Department B. And so he finds out just enough about Susie to call Johnny up and say, Johnny, I need access to the server, right? And so th that's what we're talking about here where it's, okay, you know, there's, instead of making sure that we overlap, everybody's trying to cover their own rear end. And so what winds up happening is, is you have this gap because I don't want to conflict with ops over the ops responsibility, so I'm not going to get close. Ops doesn't want to conflict with dev over their responsibilities so they don't get close to that. And you have this gap in the middle where people actually move in and find the exploits to that, right? So, you know, and that, that's the things like the database credentials or the, you know, the patch levels on certain things. And it could be libraries, which yeah. to me in some of the places that I've worked really do fall into that, right? Because ops is responsible for having the library on the machine, but dev is actually what's using it. And so, yeah, they kind of hands off. It doesn't get updated. There's an exploit to it. And there you go. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it, it just another sort of example to throw out there was we were, we were doing uh, some testing um, a while back on an API. Again, this is, you know, um, internally facing. So this is for, you know, for uh, folks that are on the inside of their network. And the idea was that they were, they were using certificates for authentication. Um, and so you were supposed to authenticate to the API via an F5. Um, and we said, well, what happens if we just, you know, connect directly to a Tomcat port on, you know, one of the various instances. And sure enough, nothing stopped us. So we just sort of bypassed that. No one really thought about that. Well, what happens if we just bypass the F5? Um, so there's a lot of these sort of examples that, you know, and, and to that point, it's, you know, no one really th sort of thinks about or, you know, sort of takes that holistic threat model and says, hey, if I were a bad guy, what would I try to do? And I think that's part of what's also missing is that, you know, that holistic threat modeling that we all should be doing and thinking about. Yeah, that reminds me of uh, a talk that a colleague of mine just gave about all of the holes in uh, the Cloud Foundry platform. And as you just mentioned a few minutes ago, people don't pay attention to the operating system layer very much. And that's one of the strengths of Cloud Foundry is that they actually curate what they call a stem cell. 
and the stem cell then allows you to roll that out to all of your VMs. Um, but to loop back to what you just mentioned, the question that I have for you is how much of the security awareness in breaking down the silos and giving everybody a little bit of responsibility, how do you do that when you manage going to a client or to, to different people and say, okay, well, the dev team needs to be aware of these few things, the, the, the ops team needs to be aware of this, and then the new security team does the rest. How do you usually divide that up? Yeah, you know, and I think you're sort of hitting the nail on the head there is that I think, you know, the silos exist and the silos um, are built on these sort of management silos. So I think they're also following the lead of their own managers, you know, who are also sort of saying, hey, this is my turf. Um, this isn't your turf. And, and I think that's part of the problem. Um, I, I once uh, I was reading um, talk about, you know, sort of books that, and sort of what, what, where they lead you. Um, I don't know if you guys have seen Team of Teams. Um, by um, Jeremy McCrystal, yeah, Jeremy right? One of my um, uh, top three business books. Yeah, and it's and it's amazing because um, I believe it was, it was in that I've been reading uh, so much lately. Um, but I think it was in there that it was sort of touched on this idea that you know, way back when, probably in the '60s, they looked at um, from an application development standpoint, they looked at the structure of your, you know, sort of an HR structure could also sort of uh, predict what the limitations of, of any architecture that you are going to build. Like you can't really sort of get out of the constraints of your HR environment. Um, they're sort of, that, that sort of locks you in place. And I think that that's part of the problem is that, uh, you know, from the standpoint of the technical folks, no one really wants to sort of push somebody else's manager or director or, you know, and, and you know, stomp on their, um, on their feet or, or, you know, on their turf. And I think that's part of the problem too that we really need to sort of break down is, um, you know, we can start to, to train people and teach people and get people to think about security. But I think if those barriers exist, no one's going to really want to try and push too hard. I mean, from a, like a DevOps practice perspective, it's, you know, we, we oftentimes talk about security is about building quality into the system. And, and so you're, by making everything code, you are securing things through the automation. You're also making it so that when you discover these holes, that 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 you make those changes, you test that there's that you've resecured these things, and then you know every time the deployment happens, uh, whether it's building a newer environment or whatever, it should be remediating or reinforcing those decisions over and over again. And so your quality hopefully the intent is that it continues to get better and better and better. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, that paradigm really, I think we've seen that it really works well um, when you're talking about like cloud development and, and cloud deployments today um, where you, I think just sort of naturally, you don't have some of those barriers we were just talking about. You don't have some of the silos because um, you have people sort of working together. It's all sort of gets munged together um, you know, when you're talking about like, you know, deploying something out to AWS or Azure or whatever. And unfortunately that, you know, how do we translate that back to when it ha you know, what's going on in your own data center? I think that's, you know, um, a problem, unfortunately, that it doesn't, you know, it's, then it gets separated back out to what we were talking about. Um, but I think what's also interesting is sort of the, the, the counter example where, 
you've traditionally been deploying everything internally and then you start to move to the cloud and you try to sort of figure out, well, who's responsible for what and how do we deploy this stuff? And um, I mean, I, I don't want to get, you know, sort of uh, way beyond my own bounds, but I, I feel like things like the Capital One hack from you know last year, I feel like that's really what that was. I mean, there are so many really good ways to secure AWS environments and you know, roles can be so granular, but if you don't understand how to set up roles, you end up doing what, you know, what we've always seen in the past with IT, which is that, well, we'll just give you everything, right? <laughs> That'll make it work because you've got all the permissions that, you know, exist, right? Everything, you know, it's, it's you know, your, your root or your, you know, whatever um, analogy you want to use. Um, and I think that's, again, you know, I think that's where we see the problems also fall through when we look at like cloud deployments is that everything becomes, you know, we get these like S3 buckets that are world readable or world writable or Mongo databases that are, you know, um, also um, exposed to the internet with just, you know, full permissions and that sort of thing. And, and so you, we're getting away from what, what, you know, what you were just talking about, like having that quality, having that sort of sense of, you know, we're putting this together holistically and, we're going to iterate until we get it right. Yeah. I, I very much remember the Capital One hack you mentioned. And the reason that stands out so much in my mind is I believe I remember it was because the S3 bucket security controls were not configured uh, correctly. And the thing about S3 at that point, at least, I have no idea if it's changed, is it's not secure by default. It's open by default. And so there's there's kind of a false sense of security. People, you know, deploying stuff to the cloud and thinking AWS is just going to take care of the security things. No, AWS takes care of the physical security of the machines in the data center, but that's where their responsive, that that's the line of their responsibilities. That's where it ends. Yeah. So specifically to the AWS kind of the default has always been that it's closed by default, but what it, what they actually added was this, um, I'm and it's funny because I'm not remembering what it is, but there's this, there's now these four options that you have to uncheck that that lets you know that by doing these things you are you are making it way easier because right now like if you create a new bucket there's all these it's going to basically give you all these warnings and saying you can't do these things because now this is completely locked down and gotcha and, uh, so they've it's it's funny because at some level yes these options enforce this or or make it very much, much more explicit that you're making these mistakes or whatever, but it's, yeah, it's, it's just funny how that is where all these vectors have, you know, most of these hacks that have happened are around the, yeah, the S3 bucket, you know, misconfiguration. And it's funny too, because you're thinking, no, I'll just check the box that says it's okay. I'm a professional. I know what I'm doing, but it's the professionals that make these mistakes because they're paying attention to the next level up or the next thing on the list. And they just assume that this is done properly. It's the assumption that gets you. Yeah. You just get, well, you just get busy. It's just so easy to get busy doing other things. Right. And, and you just, Oh, well, I'm going to do this temporarily. And then next thing you know, somebody else maybe uploads something to that bucket that has customer data in it. And now all of a sudden you've created a, a you know, a reportable incident. Yeah, I did a quick search for those um, different access control mechanisms, and I didn't see security through obscurity in any of them. That's what it seems like most people think are. It's like if you just name your uh, S3 bucket because it has to be globally unique, some sort of random GUID type 
thing, mm -hmm. uh, that doesn't necessarily make you secure because at some point, uh, some page is going to reference that and it's going to get, it's going to leak just that part yeah. of it. And there's um, automated scanners that are looking for open S3 buckets today. So, yeah. Um, so I personally think, uh, Jeffrey, that there is like a threshold for a size of a company where uh, you add ops or DevOps. Um, so you might have a startup that's very small and they basically use five servers and they have 10 people. Uh, and then at a certain point, they grow to a point where they actually need to hire the ops team. Do you feel like there is a, a size of a company that you've seen where not only do they have to have the, the ops team, but they also have to have the sec team? Yeah, I, I think that's, you know, traditionally in, the, in like companies, we would look at, you know, very small businesses like what you're describing and say, yeah, they probably wouldn't need a security team because there's not a lot of, you know, internal infrastructure there to sort of manage. And, and But when you're talking about strictly development, um, you know, that's where I think once you're talking about developing complex applications, and it really doesn't matter, um, you know, I guess um, the size of your, your team necessarily, it's really depending on what the nature of the application is, how it's being used. Um, because at some point, you know, and again, it gets back to that thread modeling that you have to look at it and say, well, what, what could the bad guys do with this? And I mean, you could be a two person company and need to have security expertise coming in and, you know, or having it in house um, and figuring out what's going on. Yeah, it, it, again, it just sort of throws everything off, like all the sort of traditional things that we've thought about um, can really change drastically. Early in my career, I figured out which jobs were worth working at and which ones weren't, mostly by trial and error. I created a system that I used to find jobs and later contracts as a freelancer. If you're looking for a job or trying to figure out where you should go next, then check out my book, The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. The book walks you through figuring out what you want, vetting companies that meet your criteria, meeting that company's employees, and getting them to recommend you for a job. Don't settle for whoever has listed their job on the job board. Go out and proactively find the job you'll love. Buy the book at devchat.tv slash job book. That's devchat.tv slash job book. So, yeah, you, you talk about threat modeling. That's uh, not a term that I work with in more of the operations side of thing. But I'm curious about that. Can you expand more on on what a threat model is and how you generate or create those? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So I think, you know, from the security standpoint, or, you know, if you ask a security practitioner what a threat model is, um, some of these folks will say, well, you know, they'll start to talk about uh, very formal models that you use um, for, for threat modeling. You know, Microsoft has, has theirs. There's several out there. Um, and some of them have tools. Like Microsoft actually has a tool that you can use, um, you know, where you can sort of put together graphically, um, you know, UML or something like that and sort of build your application. And then um, they'll actually, you know, run various scenarios through it and sort of spit out some answers. And, and there's, some, so there's some really complicated ways to do that. But I think fundamentally what we're really talking about is, um, you know, getting the entire team around a whiteboard. I mean, I've done it this way many times. And just sort of talking this out, like, okay, first, first question is, what's the most valuable stuff within this application? It's probably the, you know, it's probably going to be the data, but it may not be. It might be access into an environment or something like that. It might just be a stepping stone for some, for some purpose. 
Um, so really trying to get to that. What is that valuable, you know, what, what's the most valuable piece of all of this? Part of it also, you know, from the security standpoint, means you have to be able to answer that question. And, and that, that actually isn't always obvious. Um, you know, for example, in the last couple of years, we've seen a tremendous increase in the number of what we call supply chain attacks, where a company or an application is being attacked, not because that company or that application is all that interesting, but because it, be, it becomes um, a way into the more interesting, you know, um, companies or, or interesting data or something like that. So a good example, Reuters did a huge um, piece on this last year um, about a um, Chinese threat actor who had taken over these big companies, like HPE was one of them. I mean, we're talking about big companies um, doing it because they provide managed services. So no one really cared about HPE and what they had personally or, or you know, as a company. But the fact that they had to manage services meant that they probably had like um, direct network connections into all of their customers meant that I could easily from there hop into, you know, dozens of companies and, you know, probably unfettered. Um, and many times these are not even firewalled or anything else, like all services allowed type of a type of a situation. So when we see that sort of a thing, another example is when we've seen software companies where that's been hit. Um, you know, like CCleaner, if you guys remember that, you know, piece of software, right, for sort of cleaning malware. So CCleaner got hit um, a couple of years ago, a few years ago now. Um, and same thing, you know, it's their repository, uh, software repository was um, compromised. Uh, the attackers were able to um, put an implant of code, you know, into that. Um, into there. And it was really interesting because we saw that, you know, this is the data came from Avast who ended up buying CCleaner, right? So they were giving out this, uh, giving one of this data. And they're saying that, uh, I can't remember what the numbers were. It was something like, you know, it was, it was tens of millions, maybe even hundreds of millions of downloads. Um, but they, they, what they saw was that um, to get the second stage of malware, that only went to like, I want to say 40 people, 40 downloads, 40 company, 40 people, whatever it was. So, it was clearly targeted. In other words, they were simply, again, just the supply chain. Um, and, you know, ultimately, they're going after the, the people who use that. So, you know, getting back to threat modeling, you know, sort of identifying that. So if I'm CCleaner, I might say, well, there's nothing really interesting about my code base. There's nothing really interesting about my data. But what's really interesting is, is that I've got, let's say, just to throw out a number, I've got 500 million users. Well, that fact, the fact that 500 million people are downloading your piece of software and putting it, you know, running it on, in, you know, on their machines um, could be very interesting. And so I think it's, it's incumbent upon companies to really think about that and to figure out, hey, wait a second here, I got to put a little bit more focus on this because, you know, maybe it's just a small utility I'm, I'm building, but um, I mean, this thing runs with, you know, as, you know, administrative privileges on any Windows box that it's, you know, that it's running on. So this could be very interesting to a threat actor. That's something we very much see in the open source world. Like I was working at uh, Blue Box. company doesn't exist anymore, but Chuck, remember, this is where, or that's around the time Chuck and I uh, first met. Mm -hmm. And I think we sent you swag. They sponsored for a long time. That's right. They sent yep. me swag. They hosted the website for free for a long time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we memories. also hosted a uh, a mirror of Ruby gems, and I remember the day there. Oh, yeah. I don't remember which gem it was, uh, but there was a gem uh, that had that was uploaded, and it had malicious code in it. Oh. And I 
Yep. I'm trying to remember the exact details, but I know what they did was they took all of Ruby Gems down, and then we and other mirrors helped them try to recreate it back at the point before the malicious code was uploaded into it, and presumably all the other gems downloaded it and uh, had it in their uh, dependencies. Yeah, yeah, we, we've seen that. Um, I think with a couple of um, Git projects too. I mean, that's yeah, again, fairly common sort of, you know, tar very targeted attack for what they're trying to accomplish. But again, it's just, you know, just understanding that that this, you know, what I'm doing can build a mechanism for that. And I think that's, that's the first step to a successful threat model is understand, you know, where the goods are, where the value is to, you know, to, again, to the bad guys. And then it's just trying to figure out, well, what, what could they do? And, that, and that's where the creativity comes in. Um, you know, how, did, how would they try to get in? How would they try to succeed at doing whatever it is? Um, and having that, you know, the, the sort of broadest team available to sort of brainstorm that, um, you know, and it's, and it's a, you know, it can be as simple as, you know, like a regular brainstorming session where everyone just sort of jots down ideas, whether they're, you know, it's not about being right or wrong, because sometimes it's hard to figure out, <laughs> you know, I mean, it's, it, it's the old thing that, uh, you know, um, truth is stranger than fiction. I mean, some of the stories that we've seen um, of real attacks, like you just sort of scratch your head like, wow, I would have never thought of that. Or, you know, if I had written about that, no one would have believed me. There was a, like, that's a bunch of garbage, you know. Um, but, you know, that, that can happen. So that's really, to me, what threat modeling is. If you want to make it more formalized, if you want to try to sort of take it to the next level where you start to, you know, use tooling around it and you're doing it on a regular cadence and you're checking your current thread model versus your previous thread model, great, more power to you. But since 90% of the people aren't even doing anything, the first step is really just identifying, you know, what's valuable and starting to think about, okay, how do the bad guys get to it? Yeah, that sounds good. I think that's one of the key takeaways for today is, um, set aside some time to threat model and brainstorm uh, and then figure out what you can do. The, the next step I would probably say, and I want to pose this question to you, Jeffrey, is using the story of open source tools coming in and, and give, giving those as dependencies, what, can, what kind of tools or recommendations do you generally give to teams as far as like maybe putting in a upfront scanner, like scanning artifacts that are coming in, or some sort of runtime scanner that basically says, uh, I'm always scanning for viruses. What, what are some of the best practices there? Yeah, that, that's a great question. Yeah, and it's a tough one because, you know, I mean, you guys have seen this before. I mean, applications can be built on so many, you know, outside libraries that, like, how do you track all that? And, you know, there are projects around there. I know um, OWASP has, um, oh, I'm forgetting the tool, um, that, you know, what it's, and it may only be for like maybe Java applications, or I'm trying to remember what, you know, what languages they support today, but it basically will, um, you know, sort of enumerate for you, build a list of the software composition, like all the libraries that your package is built upon. Um, and there's commercial, there are commercial tools that will do this as well. Um, Veracode and others have like these software composition analysis types of tools where they're, you know, they'll take apart your, uh, you know, your, your, again, you know, whatever it is, you know, whatever your package might be like a war file or whatever, um, and, and look inside of it and say, okay, well, here's a whole list of everything that you're building it on. So that's a great starting point. However, whatever you use to do that, you know, just figure out what that list is, is important, but then what, you know, to your point, like, okay, great. I know what it is. So now what? Um, and, 
you know, to be honest, it, I don't know that there's anything really foolproof around that. I mean, part of it is going to be, you know, running um, application scans and testing and pen testing and stuff like that. That is certainly a proactive approach. Um, not necessarily going to get to, you know, every underlying, um, certainly, you know, automated scans have a really hard time getting to some of those underlying vulnerabilities. Like a good example of this was, if you guys remember the struts vulnerabilities that came out like in 2017, I think, I mean, that's what Equifax ended up getting hit with, um, was, you know, they had an application deployed out and didn't realize it was built on struts and it gets pops pretty quickly. Um, but, you know, just trying to identify because automated like network-based scanners couldn't identify that you're running an application, that your Java application is running on struts. You'd have to really sort of pen test it and figure out, look at it from the application side and say, can I see that that, that the functionality of struts is being used, right? You know, I mean, that's really the only way to sort of know that. So sometimes it's, it's really sort of gets um, buried in there and penetration testing is, you know, could be, um, you know, a good way to sort of figure it out. But I think it also depends on what, again, the nature of the application. There isn't just one, you know, solution. And I'll give you an example, something that's been coming out recently. If you guys are familiar or if you've heard about any of these um, MageCart, you know, sort of that's the name of a threat actor or actually it's more like an umbrella of a whole bunch of threat actors. Um, and they they were got referred to as MageCart. But one of the things, so what they do is they basically put an implant um, in, a, in like an e-commerce site that basically siphons off credit card information and throws it up to a, you know, to a server that the threat actor owns and manages, right? So they get, so basically your credit card transaction goes through, um, but at the same time, it siphons off that. And then, you know, they collect a whole bunch of it and they, and they monetize it. It's That's like a digital really skimmer that you yeah, on a, exactly. places where you swipe your debit card and such. Exactly. That's exactly what it is. Electronic skimmer. Um, and one of the means that they've, they have a lot of means for, for doing this, for how do you get it in there? And one of the means that they, they use um, is that they've hit a couple of these like JavaScript library, you know, um, companies that, you know, sort of build those widgets and such. And you package it, you know, you can package that JavaScript um, uh, library into your e-commerce site. And, you know, you don't even realize that as part of that, you just took some malicious code and it's, you know, and it's there. So, you know, I think that's a good example. If that's, you know, your concern. So you're focused on your e-commerce site, right? And you're thinking, well, how do I know if this has been compromised or not? How do I know if somebody put malicious code in? Um, so again, sort of thinking it out, you know, sort of threat modeling it. You say to yourself, well, wait a second here. For that um, attack to really work, that means that my web server is going to initiate traffic over to some unknown server, right? And deliver it. We don't know what ports. We don't, you know, who knows what the malicious, what that, you know, that malware might be using. So I don't know that. But I mean, this is one of those things where a firewall could actually block it, right? If you know, right, why should your web server ever be initiating traffic to some unknown IP address? Like that should never happen. It should um, be using have, a, white, a white list, right? And, and not uh, just exactly. saying, hey, exactly. IP will do. Exactly. Any established traffic, great, because that's probably just a user hitting it. But, my, you know, the server itself initiating. So I, there's other ways to do that. So that doesn't stop you from being, you know, from getting the malware on your machine. But there might be other ways to sort of mitigate the risk by thinking about other controls like network-based controls. So I think we have to be creative. We have to be just as creative as the bad guys are um, and thinking about how do we figure it. Because, you know, we don't want to get paranoid and just stop, you know, can't stop writing code. 
but we have to think about like, okay, what's, what might a threat look like and how could I try and stop that threat? And I think that's really what it is. Instead of just sort of blindly just trying to throw tools at it or, or something else, it's, it's, it's a tough thing to do. It's a, it's the needle in the haystack. So um, I, I think a thoughtful approach is probably the best approach. Yes. Yeah, so Jerry, to, to, uh, Jeffrey, to your point about that stress vulnerability and, and a lot of this now, obviously if the application is not being deployed regularly, it's not going to find this kind of thing, but obviously there's, there's tools that you can put in your, you know, your CI CD pipelines. They're going to scan for these types of things. GitHub actually has, you know, like a automated vulnerability detection for, you know, open source tools and stuff like that. So, you'll, you know, I've gotten a bunch of them recently just this week uh, related to JavaScript vulnerabilities myself. And cool. it's funny because the GitHub will actually create a pull request if it, if it thinks it can fix it with like, just like a version bump wow. or something like that. And you can That's just awesome. it in. Um, but there's also um, something called Nexus Lifecycle uh, by a company called Sonatype that actually is, you know, definitely doing much, much more sophisticated stuff, you know, Java, JavaScript, Python, Ruby, Go, all those good things. And it, it, it's, it, you would plug it into your CICD pipeline and it's going to be scanning and looking for those risk vulnerabilities and those types of things. So I'll put that yep. in the show notes as well. So, yeah, that's great. That's great. I mean, it's, yeah, the, you know, the, the challenge really is just, you know, you think about all the different, um, you know, sort of languages and platforms you could be coding on. That's, that's where it just gets, you know, complicated, but you know, certainly that that's, um, I mean, it, it's good that we we're seeing right more of uh, just more folks that are just understanding like what some problems are and, and really starting to build some some tooling around this. This is at least try to identify it, maybe try to fix it. That's cool. Yep. So uh, changing topic just a little bit here, but let's say a junior dev or junior ops person came to you. Let's, let's stick with the junior dev for now. And we'll cover the ops later. But junior dev says, I, you know, I finished Code Academy. Um, I just came out of a coding boot camp. I want to start thinking about security with my code. Where do they start? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the cool thing is that, I mean, there's a lot of resources out there. Um, there's so many good security resources out there. I mean, there's formalized courses. Uh, from companies like SANS and others, right? Um, there's, I mean, there's just so many. I mean, OWASP has a lot of really good information to help people sort of um, figure this out. I, I think part of it is just identifying, you know, again, I mean, I, I guess I probably sound like a broken record here, but um, if you'll use that, you know, part of that sort of aged um, analogy. But, you know, if you if you think about the whole idea of threat modeling, that really sort of clues you in on where some of the problems can exist. I mean, it's kind of funny, like, you know, for, I think it's been 20, maybe even 25 years since SQL injection was initially like publicly talked about um, in a forum or, you know, some kind of a post or something like that. <clears throat> and yet we still see, I mean, if you go to like, you know, the CVEs or, or the NVD, you know, the National um, Vulnerability Database, it, you'll still see uh, SQL injection vulnerabilities out there, even though there's so many very, you know, I guess, specific and, and, you know, good ways of avoiding it. And I think, again, it's just people don't realize or don't necessarily realize uh, where some of these vulnerabilities can come from and, or what can really happen. Um, and I, so, again, I, I think that's really the most important thing. It's not so much, I mean, learning to code securely is important, but I think even more important is understanding why you're coding securely and where you need to code securely. I think what we also tend to find is that people end up sort of bolstering defenses 
in places that the attackers are already having a really hard time getting to. I mean, one thing that we found is that attackers don't look for hard challenges. They look for the, you know, the, the low hanging fruit like everybody else. And that's what they go after. So, you know, sort of bolstering security where it's already pretty tight has limited, you know, just diminishing returns at that point. So, you know, trying to figure out where, um, where it is and what I need to be thinking about, you know, whether it's something like, I mean, we still see a lot of cross-site scripting, believe it or not. Um, it's another good example. So, you know, sort of taking a step back and figuring out, okay, um, what could somebody possibly do with cross-site scripting against my application and what should I be concerned about and how should we try and deal with that? Um, or should we just say to ourselves, you know what, it's, even if they did it, it wouldn't be that big of a deal. So let's move on to something that's more important. And, and that's really what we want um, developers to be thinking about is what's the most important and, um, and just sort of focusing in on that. Are you stuck at home climbing the walls when you should be hanging out with the community at the latest conference to get canceled? Are you wondering where to hear your JavaScript heroes like Amy Knight and Douglas Crockford and Chris Heilman? After the cancellations, I decided to put on a JavaScript conference for you online. I invited my favorite folks from around the web and got them to come speak at an online event just for you. Go to jsremoteconf.com and check out our speakers and schedule. The conference is on May 14th and 15th. The call for proposals is open until March 31st. Come join us at an online conference that we guarantee will keep you safe and keep you informed. jsremoteconf.com. Yeah, that's really cool. One of the things I love about the security uh, team is about when I say team, I'm, I'm referring to what I'm about to say, red team, blue team, and these kind of things. Yeah. Um, and the community around security is, is really awesome. And so what I would say to you, my, my question is like, what kind of community resources do you recommend to people who they may not, they may decide that they want to go into security. Like 10 years ago, I didn't know that I was going to become a, a DevOps professional because I was still an app developer. But uh, ten, you know, five years from now, I might be more of a sec sec type of guy. Um, what if somebody wants to like look into those things? What are some of the community angled type of things that you would recommend? So yeah, if somebody were interested in, in a security career, I would say, I mean, at least you know, I, I agree with you. It's hard to really predict where things are going. Um, but the two biggest um, specialties, you know, because security, like everything else, has become so specialized. Um, and the two biggest specialties we see today are probably red teaming and threat hunting. I think you just mentioned both of those, right? Um, and, you know, it's interesting because there's sort of um, two sides to the same coin, right? One is just, you know, the, the attacking side and one is sort of the detection or defending side. Um, but either way, either side that you look at, you really have to understand applications well. You also have to really understand um, operating systems and operating system internals really well. because it's not always true, but but I would say more often than not, we're seeing you know we're seeing attacks that end up, you know, hitting, um, really trying to take over an, an environment. And the way you do that is by hitting operating systems. Um, so you might start with an application level attack. Um, maybe you're gaining credentials, or maybe you're using that as an avenue to actually get, um, you know, remote code remote code exploit. Um, exploitation or, or sorry execution or something like that on the server and then from there try to you know try to move on to you know pivot into something else um, but oper really understanding um, how operating systems work and function is going to be important and really understanding underlying network 
layer protocols is also really important. So um, I think that, you know, that's probably the really the sort of the, the barrier to entry into security is really having that strong background of understanding what that is and really sort of digging into it. And there's, again, there's so many resources. If you want to dig into those, there's so many re resources available um, out there, YouTube videos and, um, you know, blogs on Medium and, and other places. So it's, it's, it's there. Like, and there's communities. There's so many communities. There's OWASP and so many other local security groups that get together and talk about this. And there's capture the flags. And I mean, all these great ways of sort of, you know, getting involved um, in the security community. But, you know, one thing, I don't know, I, I could be totally wrong about this. I really feel like what's ultimately going to happen is that we're going to have, you know, sort of smaller security teams at some point and security really just becomes embedded, you know, within operations and within dev, it has to. Like this can't be an external component anymore. It's got, it's really got to be everybody already, you know, already understanding the issues and just working on it together. Um, you know, sort of, I, I think what Scott was really talking about at the beginning of the call where, you know, he was saying that, you know, what we're really trying to do is just sort of build it in from the beginning and then iterate through as we find issues, right? We're always just sort of looking for how do we make it better and better and better. Um, and I think that's, that's where it all has to go. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I, those are, you know, some of the things that, that I think about, you know, when I, when I give advice to like younger folks who want to try and get into security or, you know, sometimes it's, you know, it's like even experienced folks, like, you know what, I'm just ready for a new challenge. I'm ready to try and do something different. And, uh, you know, there's, uh, there's a lot of, you know, there's certainly a lot of opportunities out there. Um, yeah, people need to pay attention to feeling bored. If you feel bored with your job, that means you want, you need a new aspect. And so maybe yeah. the new aspect is, is uh, going back to app development, you know, and go, or going into a different specialty. And so I like that. So I yeah. dropped two recommendations into the chat that will be in the show notes, but there's um, something called, and I have not used these personally. These are just things that have been recommended to me from my uh, coworkers at Stelligent. Um, offensive security and hackthebox.eu are two places that you can get training. One, I think, is hack the box is more on penetration testing and uh, offensive security. I think they actually have like courses and certifications. They do. They, they have really good certifications. Um, offensive security has some of the most like recognized and respected um, certifications now in the industry. Like, you know, as you start to gain those, like that, that's a huge amount of credibility to put on your resume. Cool. That ties into a question that I had that maybe could, you know, wrap things up for us a little bit, which is if you were building a security team for an organization, what would you look for to build your team? Hey, good. That's a great question. You know, um, I, I think we were just sort of touching on some of those aspects. I think it's, it's people who, want to learn, want new challenges, um, want to dig into things and just understand how they work. Um, I think that's really what got me into security in the first place was to get into security, you really had to understand how stuff works. And again, it, it, it goes across the board. It, it doesn't just, it's not just about understanding how the application works um, or how about, you know, how does the operating system work or how does the network work? It's really, you know, a combination of, um, of all three of really all the layers. Um, so I, I think that that sort of just, um, you know, sort of creativity, innovation, you know, those are things that we want to see in security people. Um, and just that sort of enthusiasm to want to learn new things and, and who are willing to sort of dig into things um, and fail and keep trying, right? 
you fail, you, you, you didn't figure it out or, you know, the, the red team exercise didn't work. So great. Let's learn from that and let's do better the next time. I mean, I think those are the types of people and it doesn't really matter where they're coming from or, you know, what their backgrounds are. If they've got some of those skills and knowledge and they're really willing to sort of dig in and learn more, um, you know, and I, and I think the other piece of it is, you know, that's really the technical side. The other side of it is really the communication side. Um, too often. Go ahead. Oh, I was going to say too often we talk in our own lingo and nobody understands it. And um, I mean, I, I catch myself doing it. Um, I catch other people doing it. I mean, it's one of the examples. I, I, I did a lunch and learn a year or two ago and I, and I started with this and I have done it a few times now. I said, you know, security people are notoriously terrible at talking to application developers. Like we'll talk about cross-site scripting and we'll show you an alert box, a JavaScript alert box. As if somehow that JavaScript alert box is supposed to tell you guys that this is like the worst thing in the world. And I'm sure as a developer, you look at that like, who cares? But that's how we're communicating. And so many pen testing reports over the years have just, that's what they've used as an example. And I, I just feel like that's an example where um, we as security people look at that and say, hey, I was able to do something I'm not supposed to be able to do. But to the rest of the world, they look at that and say, it's a box that says XSS. What is that supposed to mean? Um, so I think, you know, communications is the other piece that's really important, especially today, um, where everything's so technical. We all have our own lingo and we all have to really be able to understand and, and really communicate well to each other so that we get those folks to understand that, hey, this is why it's important. This is what the bad guys are doing. Um, this is where we all got to sort of listen to this and, and, and you know, sort of do our part um, and, uh, and, and focus on it. I had one more question along those lines before we moved to picks, and that was, I don't think, I don't see this as often now, but um, I'm thinking of the book, The Phoenix Project, where there was a security engineer who it seemed, you thought his job was to keep the, or his job was to keep the company secure, but he kept on putting things in place that made the company cease to function. And if the company's not functioning, there, there's, there's no point to it. And it's something I've seen not as much lately, but I have seen the field before. Like I've had someone tell me, well, if I had my way, we would just have the computers in a hermetically sealed box that no one could ever go in. Well, yeah, that might be secure, but again, the business can't function uh, when that happens. So what kind of advice do you give companies to use these secure practices, but still be able to function as a business? Yeah. So I, I think it's, you know, that from a security standpoint, when you talk about, you know, you didn't ask me, um, you know, who, you know, um, when, when Tyler asked about, you know, what types of people I want to hire in the security team, I think the other question to ask was, what kind of security leaders do you want to hire? Um, and I think you want a security leader who's going to sort of step in and say, security, like cybersecurity is business risk. And until you can tie the two together, um, you're going to get that sort of disconnect where cybersecurity risk is being focused on too much or too little. Um, it has to be married together. I mean, we've seen very few examples of where a cyber attack made a business go under, like, you know, like they folded up and they were gone. Like that's real business risk. No business risk means that we will not be able to like pay our people or service our clients or, you know, run our business. Um, and I think security people need to understand that, that that's, the old, you know, that's the bottom line is that it's all about business risk. And so you have to, again, sort of filter how we think about, you know, the, the security controls we want to put in place. Well, if they're going to hamper the business, then we're adding more business risk than we're taking away. Um, and, and you're right. I think that's led to a lot of times you have all these security policies and then you have all these 
policy exceptions because the policies don't work. If you have a whole bunch of policy exceptions, that should indicate to you that something is wrong with the policy um, or that you just have a tremendous amount of technical debt. It could be one or the other or could be both. Um, but I think that's the sort of the mindset that you want in somebody is to say, all right, let's figure this out. Let's work together and say from a business risk standpoint, what what does this mean and what you know what risks are we willing to take on? And sometimes that is that we're willing to take on risk that could lead to a compromise. But what do we do then? Do we have all the pieces in place? Are we prepared to handle a compromise if and when it happens? Um, and that might be a very valid way to think about managing cybersecurity. All right. Well, thank you. Really enjoyed talking to oh, you absolutely. this episode. And let's go ahead and move on to picks. Something we do at the end of each episode is we mention each of us one or two things that we've found useful over the past couple of weeks uh, or think that our listeners would find useful. And my first is a uh, presentation. It was given at Black Hat uh, last year by Kelly Shortridge and Dr. Nicole Forsgren. And it was, uh, it was called the uh, something, something Chaos, the Inevitable Marriage of uh, DevOps and Security. Uh, the content is fantastic. And additionally, the styling on the slides is absolutely ace. So I will put a link to those slides in the show note. Highly recommended. I think there's videos of other times the talk has been given. It's a really, really good intro into DevSecOps, whether you're on kind of the business side or the technical side uh, and how they need to work together. Uh, the second one is I've been inside a lot, like the rest of the world, it seems. So I've been watching a lot of Netflix. And my favorite show I've seen recently is The Witcher on Netflix. Uh, the story is cool. People ask, say, is it Game of Thrones? I'm like, no, it, it's different. Uh, story is cool. Uh, the I haven't read the novels or played the game, so it's all new to me. And some of the individual performances by some of the actors are absolutely fantastic. So highly recommend that. If you are still quarantined uh, when you're hearing this, uh, definitely check out The Witcher on Netflix. And with that, let's go ahead and go to Tyler. All right, great. Um, we had talked about Bobby, or we had talked, uh, spoiler, we had talked about SQL injections. And it's, and I, I mentioned uh, Bobby Drop Tables, which is an X, XC, XK, how do you pronounce that? Yeah. X, XKCD. <laughs> I always memorize it wrong. I know where to find it, but I'm a bit dyslexic with some of those letters. And uh, so that's my number one pick is to kind of visualize what, a SQL injection was when we're thinking about the history of security and, you know, I mean, even in the history of computers is only a few decades old. Right. Um, and, and then my second one is, is to actually talk about uh, one of the tools I use the most, which is called Bosch and Bosch is a recursive algorithm or a recursive name for uh, Bosch outer shell and Bosch outer shell was developed by VMware spun out into P Pivotal and then Pivotal got bought by VMware. So they kind of went waffled, waffled back and forth there. And it's a great tool, but it's, it's not just a configuration management tool. It's a uh, lifecycle management tool. And it uses a concept called stem cells and stem cells are that are a very good blue team type of defensive way to replace and refresh your VMs. So you're constantly getting patches to the underlying VM vulnerabilities. And that comes for free with Bosch. Um, and I, that's one of the things I love most about Bosch. That's what I was working on a lot today. It was just simple patching, but it's almost bulletproof. It just almost always works. I, I can't give it a, like a, 
that's the 100% accuracy because nothing ever always works, but it works so much of the time that you, you barely ever see it not work. So stem cells is my other pick for today. And I don't have any other pop culture uh, things because I've been, other than Minecraft, that's my main uh, go-to during, during the shelters. So <laughs> mm-hmm. thanks. Awesome. How about you, Scott? All right. So uh, I'm going to start off with the, you know, situationally relevant. The, there's a Netflix series called Pandemic, and it's basically just kind of like a documentary. It's multiple episodes, and hour, hour long. I think it's pretty interesting. Kind of gives you a little more in depth of things like Ebola and stuff like that. Um, I've also read a bunch of books and I've given other picks related to this. So um, that'll be in the show notes. I also will give a, a lighter suggestion. If you are an Amazon Prime member, uh, you can, there's a documentary just called Sriracha. Uh, that's really, really cool about um, the guy who invented or basically brought Sriracha from Vietnam to the US. And it's like 30 minutes. It's a great thing you can like watch while you're eating dinner or whatever. And because my last pick is going to be if you don't use a password manager yet, please, please switch to using a password yes. manager. There's free open source things like KeyPass, um, and you know you can install it on Linux, Windows, Mac. Uh, if you are going to want passwords on your phone, um, I would say use something like um, Dashlane, which is definitely multi-platform. I think one password is Mac only. Um, I I will end with a caveat that um, do not use LastPass whatsoever, ever, ever, ever. Do not use it. They're constantly being compromised. Don't use it. Find something else. So, and I might've got, like I said, I think somebody was jumping in to maybe correct me on whether LastPass is multi-platform. One password is multi-platform. Is it? Okay. I wasn't sure. It may have started off as speed Mac only. (laughs) Yeah, definitely did. So, yeah. And Chuck, how about you? Yeah, I've got a couple of picks. So um, I am working on some remote conferences for obvious reasons. I mean, we're quarantined, right? Or we we're at least trying to be. As we record this, I have the JavaScript one together. By the time this goes out, I should have, I'm, I'm seriously considering doing a DevSecOps one. I am definitely, definitely going to be doing a DevOps one. Uh, go to devchat.tv slash conferences and you'll be able to see it there. Um, I'm also working on uh, setting up online meetups. Um, currently, I kind of started with our bigger audiences. So that was JavaScript, Ruby, Angular, React, and Vue. Um, React Native is definitely in the works. Um, it just takes time to run them all. And so it's a matter of getting them up and running. I would love to do a DevOps one. Um, if you're interested in either helping me find speakers, helping me find a sponsor, um, helping me just make it run, um, we can probably get something together. And yeah, I, I've just gotten emails. Hey, we canceled the meetup. And I'm just like, oh man, people need this stuff. So um, I'm just putting it out there. Uh, folks, I, I really want us all getting together. I really want to see us, you know, come together as a community. And kind of in that vein, I guess my other pick is just all of the great things that people are doing for each other during this whole coronavirus thing. Right. I mean, I have seen a couple of Facebook groups pop up that are like, hey, look, we all live within a half hour of each other. That's basically Utah County um, where I live. You know, we all live within a half hour of each other. If you have extra stuff, you know, extra medicine, extra toilet paper, uh, 
extra whatever, right? Uh, post it here. And if you need something, then post it here. So somebody else who has it can get it to you, right? And I've, I've seen and heard stories of people dropping stuff off at strangers' houses or finding out that there's an older person that lives around them, right? And basically going to the grocery store for them um, and dropping stuff off, right? Uh, basically with a, uh, a container of Clorox wipes so they can wipe it down before they bring it in if they're that concerned, right? And I mean, just things like that. And, you know, let's all take care of each other. In the tech community, let's take care of each other. In the wider world community, let's take care of each other. If you have an older neighbor, check on them, take care of each other. I mean, that kind of stuff. And people are already doing a great job of this in a lot of ways. But yeah, I mean, that's my pick is really just that people are great. Awesome. Uh, Jeffrey, how about you? Right. So, yeah, you know, one thing I, I would uh, definitely, um, you know, recommend taking a look at is the MITRE ATT&CK matrix. Um, really the whole project. If you haven't looked at ATT&CK, A-T-T, and then like the ampersand C-K. Um, so it's open out there. It's, you know, free to access. <clears throat> um, it's a really collaboration between MITRE and you know, just the security community, but it is so much information, so many tools. Um, you can learn so much from it, and you can also build your whole red team and <clears throat> threat hunting um, capability by using that sort of mapping to that. Um, it's just a great, it's just a great resource. And there's the attack con that happened, I think, last fall. So all their um, <clears throat> like the videos have been posted. And um, so much good information out there. If you just want to learn more about security and threat modeling and, you know, sort of the, you know, threat intelligence, like what's going on out there? What do the attacks look like? What are the threat actors doing? There's so much great information right there. Um, so definitely highly recommend taking a look at that and leveraging it, you know, within your environment. Um, yeah, I think that's the best, uh, best recommendation I can give. But I certainly second uh, what Chuck was saying that uh, just let's all just look out for each other. Absolutely. And I, no, if I, I oh, go I ahead. One, I forgot to plug my own thing. I had a, I, I created a free course on Udemy uh, for AWS's cloud development kit, which allows you to do infrastructure as code to build your infrastructure on AWS. And so I, I wrote, I created a free course. It's about 30 minutes long. It's on Udemy. It's in the show notes. It's called introduction to CDK. So check that out as well. Awesome. Thank you. Alrighty. Well, thank you, everyone. Uh, as Chuck said, please take care of each other in this time and beyond. And we will be back in your ears next week. Take care. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.